While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. follow you on twitter what are they getting out of it what are they getting out of that deal they get the very finest in tech related tweets in shameless promotions for my book podcast overdue and cat pictures i think they get a lot of cat pictures not that many like if i'm gonna take a picture of something it's probably the cat but i don't need to take a picture of that many things do you, I think the last couple episodes have really overplayed my relationship with the cat. I don't think that that's true. I think relative to how often we've talked about the cat on the podcast, there was a huge spike. But <laughs> I don't think that it is any different. Because sometimes when I'm hanging out with you by yourself, you'll just get a picture from Susanna on your phone just of the cat. Or you'll send one to her because you love your cat so much. Not. You can't prove oh, it. Oh, I don't love my cat. I'm not... Worried about him at all when I'm not near him. What are you even doing? Are you looking up a picture of your cat right now? No, I'm looking at Susanna and my chat log. And it actually, we <laughs> there are few. The number of cat pictures to text messages is pretty, it's pretty low I lately. think a cat picture equals like five text messages. It's still pretty low. A picture even message. That metric. I would say any, any between people, I would say a picture message. Blah, a picture. I think it's worth about a thousand thousand words. Well, is that, how many does that does that how many how many do you that? lose in the in the transition from analog to digital? <laughs> well, it depends on the resolution of the image, right? Okay. If it's like a, it's like a how many megapixels like what word? What's how many words in a meg, megapixel? I think there's two words: mega and pixel. <laughs> I'm not. I'm welcome I'm to overdue. <laughs> This is a podcast about the books that you've been meeting to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. Uh, and if you're just joining us for the first time, we don't always talk about Twitter. We often talk about uh, books, books that either of us has had on the shelf or on the mental shelf for a good long time. Um, and we're ta- the we tackle them on the show. Mental shelf. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. What, I don't. Know. My mental shelf is kind of dusty lately. <laughs> I need to clean it. Got a lot of stuff up there. Got a lot of unfiled papers in my mental shelf. I'm. That's too bad. You should consider drugs. I don't know. <laughs> that took a. Turn. I didn't know. I didn't know where to take that. That took a turn real fast. You threw me a potato and it was too hot. I had to drop it. Wait, wait. Did you not know to squeeze the lemon to make lemonade and other assorted metaphors? <laughs> I looked a gift horse in the mouth. I know you're not supposed to. But he just looked so pleasant. His teeth needed inspection. Yes. Okay, Craig, what did you read this week? Let's just let's get to Brass Tacks. Oh, the Brass Tacks. I read The Unnameable by Samuel Beckett. Okay. That's, yeah. Okay, tell me, tell me about Samuel Beckett, okay, I, can tell I you know something. the name, but I have not read anything by him. So, like, who is he? Is he still alive? 
Do you really not know? Have a Twitter account? (laughs) No. Let's back up. Are you playing Devil's Dumbhead, or are you actually that ignorant of Samuel Beckett? Is he still alive? No. He's dead. He died. He died in 1989. Okay, that's a while ago. He was. probably could have learned that he definitely doesn't have a twitter account okay uh does he, his estate have a twitter account i don't think so his his nephew manages his estate right now um, okay. are there any characters from his works that people have created twitter accounts for i would not be surprised i i don't have it in front of me i don't have twitter in front of me right now I uh, would not be surprised if good old Didi and Gogo from Waiting for Godot had Twitter accounts. Oh, that's the Waiting for Godot guy. All right. Did you? Hmm. Now, well, I mean, now that you mentioned it, I totally knew that. But <laughs> you're terrible. Uh, Listen, it's not my book. It's not my job to come to this you're knowing anything a, about anything. If you were a talk show host, you'd be at your desk and you'd be like, "Oh, who's this Barack Obama fellow that?" my guy booked for me today listen i'm not gonna learn anything about (laughs) did that for years for years and he had a job and he still has a job he has a new job now same suspenders new job yeah he has a like it's called politic king or something (laughs) like just really stupid so don't put me on blast (laughs) okay let me tell you a little bit more about samuel beckett all right, hit me. Do you, Samuel Beckett? I'm not going to ask you. You don't know anything. Samuel Beckett was <laughs> born. He was born in Ireland. All right. Uh, he moved to Paris after uh, teaching at uh, Trinity College in Dublin uh, for a couple years, uh, and then he traveled around Europe in the 30s. And then moved to France, and then served in the French army in World War II. Actually, where he won, you know, two awards for service, <clears throat> and then started. He'd been writing uh, novels and poetry. He was actually like a not quite student, but and not definitely not a peer. Kind of a mm, maybe just student of James Joyce. <laughs> All James right. Joyce was sort of a mentor of his. Do you know who James Joyce is, Andrew? Yes. What did James Joyce write? Oh, it's right on the It's the tongue. big one. What's the big one? Oh, uh, you're going to have to help me out. Was it rhyme with? Shmoomishies. Ulysses? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he also wrote The Dead and a couple other things. Um, so James Joyce's big thing was... <clears throat> Make it as big as possible. Like, know it. Try to learn as much as you can and put that in your writing, um, and it'll show. And apparently, in uh, I guess the late 30s, might have been actually just after World War II, um, or mid 40s, that Beckett apparently had some sort of epiphany. He was he was recovering. I guess it was after the war. He was recovering at his mother's house in Ireland, I suppose, and he had a revelation that if he tried to keep imitating James Joyce's style, that he would, you know, kind of forever live in his shadow and he wouldn't be able to do it. Sure. Um, So his quote, and there's a quote of his, and I'll I'll give it to you. He says, I realized that Joyce had gone as far as one could in the direction of knowing more, being in control of one's material. He was always adding to it. You only have to look at his proofs to see that. I realized that my own way was in impoverishment. 
in lack of knowledge and in taking away, in subtracting rather than adding. Um, and you kind of see that over the course of Beckett's career. Like he starts with kind of conventional novels. Um, even Murphy and Watt, which are his earlier novels, aren't really, con- they're not super conventional by today's standards, but they still have, you know, characters and plot and setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then even over the course of his theater career, which started with Waiting for Godot, which has, you know, it's very coy in a lot of its actual facts. Um, he goes even further down the rabbit hole of kind of stripping away context and stripping away uh, anything that he could classify as window dressing and kind of just getting mm-hmm. to the bare bones of human experience. So Okay, so um, you've mentioned Godot a couple times. Like, what are the other things that he's... Like, if I knew anything about Samuel Beckett, what what works of his would I know about? <laughs> okay. Uh, the big one, another big one that you might rec- that you might know if you knew Samuel Beckett is his play Endgame. Um, okay. And the two, the most, like, enduring image of that play are these two characters who live in trash cans. And their names escape me right now. He has a lot of, a lot of his plays, especially, um, you know, you can see it in Godot, you can see it in other plays. They have these characters that are in a state of stasis of some kind. And a lot of times it's this kind of physical manifestation of something else. There's another play of his called Happy Days where it's a woman who is, uh, for the first act of the play, buried up to her waist in the earth. And then in the second act of the play, she's buried up to her neck. Um, And she's just kind of going about her day (laughs) and kind of tells a couple stories from her life, potentially from her life. Um, and then the play ends basically. Uh, what else would you know? Huh? Yeah, right. It's cool. It's a, not sure. Not sure what to make of that. No. Like, uh, you would know potentially his the three novels that are in this quote unquote trilogy, even though he did not uh, care for that grouping called Malloy, Malone dies, and the unnameable. Uh, and the reason I have the book is actually one of the first short pieces i did out of college was a couple selections from his novel malloy just follows this kind of eccentric older man through uh the countryside of an i think an irish isle and so two two things about this particular collection i'm that i'm asking about because i'm looking at it on our yeah yeah homepage right now and it's it's you know, the, it's Samuel Beckett, three novels, and I think that it's been packaged this way for a while, yes. right? Like, did he package them this way? If so, like, is there any through line to them, or are they totally unrelated? They, I don't know if he originally packaged them together. I'm sure later in his life he probably okayed it. I don't know that to be true. Um, he originally wrote them in French and translated them himself. He started writing in French... Uh, he said, actually, because it pr- it was helpful in preventing him from writing with too much style. <laughs> kind of by forcing himself to write in another language, he was purposely making himself more economic with language. Okay, I thought he was bashing French. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Um, well, I know one of the things, uh, this is only tangentially related, but like one of the most well-regarded French dramatic poets, for lack of a better word, John Racine, like the French Shakespeare, if you want to call him that. Um, 
he maybe used two to three thousand different words in all of his plays, and like Shakespeare used like over ten thousand, like, and mm-hmm. he invented most of them. So I think there's something, yeah, right. there's something very conservative about the French language in general that I think is probably what was interesting to Beckett. Um, there is, there isn't a plot through line to these books. Um, the through line is actually how these books kind of slowly abandon plot. Um, dig, if you will, Andrew, a novel that has no narrator, or no, it only has a narrator, has no plot, no setting, barely characters, just a narrator. <laughs> that is that is the unnameable. That is the book okay. that I read. Because, yeah, this is of the three, this is the last of the three. And so you say that he slowly abandons the things that we kind of think about when we think about a novel. Yes. And this is this is the last of the three. And you're mentioning before we started the show that it was maybe going to be a hard one to talk about and you didn't know how long the episode was going to be because <laughs> you didn't I I don't know. Like I I don't know if there's just not a lot to say or if it's it's just like there's just one kind of kernel to get your head around and that's that's it because it's such a like a spare play and he's he's known for minimalism anyway so it's explain to me what you mean it's there's not a there's not a plot so there you know the conventional kind of spend some time unpacking what the plot is before we unpack unpack how that relates to theme is harder to do um what i what i can say is that it starts out <clears throat> and it's just you know, it slowly becomes apparent that it's just this voice that is talking, and the and the voice has two kind of goals that are in constant competition throughout the entire book. It wants to stop talking, it wants silence, and it also knows that it cannot stop talking. <clears throat> so over the course of the first half of the book, he is inventing or referencing other characters, um, almost as if he is almost as if it's a narrator trying to decide what story to tell. Does that make sense? Yes. So he talks about himself as this kind of disembodied existence that he constantly references an outside they. And when I'm starting the book, I'm wondering if it's like, I am Samuel Beckett and I exist as nothing but the words that come out of my mind and the they is my audience that, you know, demands things of me. Or... Maybe the they is the world that kind of gives me all of my ideas that I write with. He talks a lot about whether or not anything he knows is because they, quote-unquote, told him or because he knew it intrinsically. Um, You know, it makes so much sense. Um, (laughs) And then the, the kind of characters that you can wrap your mind around, and he uses them very sparingly, are something called Mahud, M A Hood. Um, and another character called Worm that he talks about a lot. Mahood, Mahood and Worm. Mahood and Worm. A classic buddy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he talks a lot about whether or not he is Mahood or whether or not they are trying to make him into Mahood. And you don't really get a sense of who Mahood is except he's like he is a character that the narrator tried to tell a story about and is trying to distance himself from. But the narrator doesn't know if he is Mahood or not. And then he moves on to Worm. 
And at some point, I believe that he just kind of decides that Worm is just a big eye. Like, literally, like, just a big eye. Like lidless, wreathed in flame, or what kind is the... Of, well, lidless, but not, re- <laughs> but not wreathed in flame. <laughs> okay. Lidless, and so it kind of, it like, cries, because it can't blink back any tears. It's really weird. Um, and he's just, like, trying, he's trying on these different characters let me see if i i think i uh i had this marked out somewhere um i mean i guess i would it help to i don't know like what's the what's the point like why like would it would it help to start with why this story and then like step back from there because just it sounds like there are a lot of strange concepts and not quite characters to like wrap your head around but i'm not like I'm not sure how it all comes together Great. at this point. Yeah, okay. I think I don't know for sure. And I was trying to kind of look it up and even the first couple paragraphs of any like paper that someone wrote on this book gave me a headache. Um <laughs> <laughs> well, You meant I mean you mentioned and last week we ran the Battle Royale episode. Yeah. That webisodes? Yeah, episode. the webisodes. <laughs> Check out our webisodes. They're I mean, they're all technically on the web. <laughs> Um, and we did it partly because you were just like, you were just having trouble, like getting through it. Yes. Okay. I'll start there. Yeah. Large sections of this book are run on sentences with very short clauses separated by commas. And it is fascinating to read and it's kind of hypnotic in a way because of the rhythm to it mm-hmm. but it can also be extremely difficult to lose yourself in it and like what is actually being said sometimes it actually helped me to stop and kind of if not say it fully aloud just kind of like vocalize it softly to myself because otherwise i was going to get lost like he doesn't is it like that that thing where you you like read something and your eyes, you know, go over it and you clearly like you, you read it with some part of your brain, but then you realize that you were thinking about something else and you have to like go back through to actually. Yeah. Actually I'm showing you a page of the book right now. There are maybe, Man, I do not, I don't know that I see a period in that. There are three, I'm, I'm not, I'm probably underestimating, but there might be three, uh, like paragraph returns in the entire book. About <laughs> ten pages in, there are no line breaks ever again. Yikes! Um, and periods come few and far between. <laughs> uh, and he'll also do some like when he is kind of putting words in these characters, I guess mouths. Um, sometimes he'll likes he'll start talking about this non-determinate they as if they have any sort of agency on his life. If it is a life, he's not sure. Um, and he will kind of put words in their mouth, but he won't put quotations around it or anything. So if you're not careful, it's easy to kind of get hypnotized by the by the rhythm of the language. And if you're not careful to kind of pick it apart as it's going, then you can miss when he's like changing voices. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I think it was like I was very interested to read this novel and it just i wanted to take time with it but then it would kind of wear me out like paying full attention to it was difficult for long stretches at a time right um 
I want to. I want to. And I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of the book that did that to me. Like there was one particular book that I really had. Was it? It wasn't the Vonnegut, was it? No, I like the Vonnegut. The Vonnegut went, but I mean, it was it was similar sometimes in that it did go into kind of a dreamy. Well, Vonnegut doesn't really do run-on sentences, but no, it, it wasn't that one. It may have been. Um, it may have been like going all the way back to like love in the time of cholera. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like. Anyway, I'm sorry. That was that was a weird. No, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> unnecessary. Um, I want to give an example of of when Beckett kind of. And here's the thing. Here's what helped me read this book. And I don't know that it's true, but I spent a good two thirds of this book just assuming that this was Beckett speaking as himself. Like whether or not that that's true. Is that like an accepted reading of the of the book, or is that? I don't think it is. I don't know that it is, but it helped me like at least just get a handle on it. Like I needed, okay, cool. I needed to treat the book as if an author were trying to write a book literally just writing down every word that came out of his mouth and feeling like he isn't even a person. Does that make sense? Like right. you're just like I'm you're a medium through which all of these words are hitting the page. Yes. Okay. Um so at one point when he's struggling with whether or not he is this character Mahood, um he says, what does he say? Um Mahood and I, if we are twain, as I say we are, I never saw him. I don't see him. He has told me what he is like, what I am like. They have told, they have all told me that. It must be one of their principal functions. It isn't enough that I should know what I'm doing. I must also know what I'm looking like. This time, I am short of a leg, and yet it appears I have rejuvenated. That's part of the program. Like, And then he goes on to explain how he has one leg and he walks around and he hobbles around and then he kind of tells this story about this one-legged character and then he abandons it like four pages later because he doesn't think it it works. You know what I mean? Sort of. Yeah, it sounds like he just... I don't know, it sounds like what what would happen if... Because, okay, when, I, when I'm sitting down to write something, I usually... and I. I I, I actually feel like I, I would have more success writing stuff if I was able to just write stuff down without any with without as much like respect for how my first draft came out. But it sounds like if I just sat down and the first thing I thought I just started writing and I didn't stop like it's <laughs> I would write something like this. That's what it is. No. I and if I hit a, if I hit a dead end, I would just like I would I would be like, OK, that's a dead end now. And I wouldn't instead of deleting it and like bringing together the thing I'm writing into a cohesive whole, I would just leave it and jump to the next thing. Um, so I'm going to give you an example of that in just a second. Okay. Hit me. Uh, and here's another thing that I found weird because this was, this novel was, I think written either contemporaneously with Godot or just after it kind of predates a lot of his other theater work. So there's a couple things in here that feel very much like they were in that play um, there's reference, like maybe he was workshopping them or something. Like, for... okay, you saw when I did Godot in school, right? Yes. Do you remember how they argue about carrots and turnips a lot? Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's a whole bit about that in here. Like, <laughs> but it's it's mixed up with this other image where he has decided he's not Mahood anymore. He's not sure what he is, and he goes on this tangent about maybe he is this head that exists in a jar. And this woman comes and, like, feeds him food. It's weird. It's super weird. Don't worry about it. Um, but that is... <laughs> I'll try. 
but that is like the conceit of this other play that he wrote called Play, of course. Which are yeah, Samuel Beckett? Come I know. on, I didn't. I didn't know anything about you twenty minutes ago. But all of the all of the characters in that play are just heads in jars, and it's almost like they're all dead. It's it's like they're in their urns, and they're kind of recounting this love triangle between these three characters that kind of ruined all three of them. Very Futurama of him. Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was really excited about that, and then I was like, "Hey, weird." Um, but so he he goes on this whole thing and then he kind of gets he kind of gets lost in it right and he says uh she must have talked it over with her husband and probably been told that i was merely stifling that is just the reverse of the truth but credit where credit is due we made a balls of it between us i with my signs and she with her reading of them and he goes this story is no good i'm beginning almost to believe it but let us see how it is supposed to end that will sober me the trouble is i forgot how it goes on but did i ever know perhaps it stops there Perhaps they stopped it there, saying, "Who knows? There you are now. You don't need us anymore." And you see, you can like, you can hear him write, like talking to himself as he's writing, which is actually really cool, but it's also very disorienting. Yeah, it, it makes it makes the unnameable seem less like a work unto itself and more like, yeah, some I don't know, some like scratch pad that he just happened to transcribe and publish, you know. And, and, but then what – I don't know. I feel like I can't read the longer passages that get here because I would have a stroke, I think, if I were try to read them. Um, <laughs> especially towards the end of the book, he stops referencing the more concrete elements that he's <laughs> – the very few – Such as they are. Yeah, such yeah. as they are. Cause even, so like Mahood and – Yeah, and Worm he, tosses, and like the, he tosses them out. He tosses out the idea that there are even these people outside of him – kind of feeding him information or demanding things of him and he starts to reference like refer to himself as i think the word he uses is like a tympanum like the medium between an inside and an outside so like the Mm -hmm. the world around him and the mind behind the voice basically and that's it and it becomes this struggle between waiting for silence to happen or hoping that silence will happen and this need to continue talking, um, which to me is like speaking to him not maybe maybe he's struggling with wondering why he writes and he's and he's you know not sure why he does it, but he feels like he has to, you know. Um, and there's this kind of like <sighs> he gets wrapped up in in trying to convince himself to go on or trying to convince himself that he's screwed and, and doesn't need to go on. Um, and then what makes it kind of like this weird meta scratch pad is that throughout the book, he's referencing other characters that he's put in other novels. Like he references both Malloy and Malone from the other two books in the trilogy. Mm-hmm. He references Murphy, which was his first novel. He references Watt like really briefly like he says, he's like talking about worm, and he's like, "Wait, I almost said what?" And then he just moves on. I'm like, what are you <laughs> talking about? It's okay. So, it, so your reading of this is that it's like it's Beckett writing as Beckett, just trying to figure stuff out. In your research, like in in the things that you read, trying to figure out what this book was doing, what are the other like commonly held? beliefs like do you know any of them like what what are the other like quote-unquote valid readings of this book and did Beckett ever 
Did he ever elaborate himself, or are we just left to figure it out ourselves? The the closest thing I found is actually a less contextual reading of the book. It's like you just take it at face value that there is a voice and that it talks. Like, and I think that that's what he wants it to be. Does that make sense? Like, it does make sense, but I find that less interesting than him <laughs> writing as him. I think that's part of the problem. Okay. Um, I know that the book kind of direct is is a direct influence on a later theater work that he did called Not I, where there is an actress on stage and she is the only thing you're supposed to see of her is her mouth. Like you are literally they shine a light on her mouth and then she tells a story and insists that the things she says in the story did not happen to her. Um, okay. So I think that is a more fully developed and slightly more relatable version of what this story is because this because it's on the page and he doesn't have to have a person reading the words it actually does allow him to make it very non-literal does that make sense mm-hmm. um the uh the two main readings on the book in general are whether or not it is ultimately kind of pessimistic or whether it is uh if not optimistic, at least kind of indicative of being able to endure. Does that make sense? I guess. Tell, I just well, don't I'll, know how. I don't know how it can be either because it doesn't. It just doesn't seem like there's. Doesn't seem like there's a lot here to grab onto. You know, in terms of a worldview or even like an attitude. It just. It seems like a lot of stuff, which is probably a. You know, it's like a side product of you of you just describing it to me. Like you, you can't describe it in its entirety oh because it's just so, it sounds so dense is, and like, so it is simultaneously dense and really spare actually. Um, yeah. because a lot of the kind of looping, loping, entrancing passages, the words aren't very complicated. It's a lot of like, what if I do this? But what if I do that? What about this? Maybe that, I don't know. Who knows? Can we ever know? Like, that's the kind of the rhythm of what happens, right? And then there's a passage about two-thirds of the way through the book where he's he abandons the personal pronoun I for, like, ten pages. He's like, I'm never going to mm-hmm. reference myself again. And then he writes in either the second or the third person for, like, ten pages until he can't do it anymore. Um, and then there's another part where he says he he says he's asked himself too many questions – he says more resolutions while we're at it. That's right, Re- uh, resolutely more resolutions. <laughs> and then his his vocabulary like explodes, kind of on purpose. He's like, make abundant use of the principle of pars- of parsimony, as if it were familiar to me. It is not too late. Assume notably henceforward that the thing said and that the thing heard have a common source. And he has like a page and a half of all like highfalutin words in imperatives. Like, as if he's trying to break the entire rhythm of the story. Um, which I think it is just him, or at least the voice, anyway, if that's a character that you can say is a character, I don't know if you can. Um, trying to figure out how to continue speaking if what it actually wants is silence. I think it's trying to figure out how to end its own story. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think so, to, to the extent that anything you've told me so far <laughs> makes any sense at all. Uh, so going back to the pessimistic versus optimistic thing that I kind of left hanging, the end of the book is this really, you know, it's probably like a two-page run-on sentence where uh, the voice doesn't know what silence will feel like because the voice kind of dreams of being silent, but it knows that it is kind of forced to keep talking. Mm-hmm. Um and he goes, uh, perhaps they've, uh, perhaps they've said to me already. Perhaps they have carried me to the threshold of my story before the door, op- before the door that opens on my story. That would surprise me. If it opens, it will be I. It will be the silence where I am. I don't know. I'll never know. In the silence, you don't know. And here's probably the most famous line of the book: "You must go on. I can't go on. I'll go on." Period. End of the book. So it's like. There are two views on that last sentence that are, it is either incredibly optimistic, because after this, you know, 100 pages of whether or not the voice can continue speaking and and how it's going to go about doing so, it ends with, I will go on, right? I was reading something today where somebody was like, but if you want to, there's one read of it where the fact that the book ends is inherently pessimistic, (laughs) like... The voice says it will go on, but then it doesn't because it ends. What else can it do, though? I mean, it's got to end. I guess. I don't know. Like, book, it's inevitable the, that it will Theoretically, the book would end. end, yes. But if you, you know, when you take into account that it is very aware that it is a book and very aware that it is the voice of the narrator devoid of everything else, the fact that it ends could potentially relate to I, the I guess the story like in as the, much as it exists like the way I could walk up to somebody at a party and be like oh yeah we're all we're all as young as we're ever gonna be again like we're all life is <laughs> suffering and we're all headed toward death have you tried have you tried these whiskey sours they're pretty good yeah anyway gonna die I'm gonna go die now have a good one yeah, I don't know. It's it it could it could easily be written off as an experiment in as much as anything he wrote can be written off as kind of an experiment like it does I mean, it sounds like an experiment. I I I hesitate to say that this has a point based on what you've told me, but I wish I It just it sounds hard to digest. Yes, it feels I felt it was weird. I was inside of the book, and I was like, I'm enjoying the fact that I'm reading this book. <laughs> but whenever I stopped to think about, like, what I was getting out of it, I don't know what I was. Does that make sense? Like, I, it was kind of technically very impressive um, and had some interesting quotes and and was kind of fascinating from a literary perspective on Beckett, I guess. Yeah, and maybe maybe as somebody who is kind of an admirer of some of Beckett's other work, maybe you got something out of it. That, that yeah. That somebody who just came at it cold would not Oh my get god, out of it. I would not throw this book at someone who did not know Samuel Beckett. <laughs> oh dear God. Okay, so hit me with this, because I should have asked you this like twenty five minutes ago right. and I didn't. Um why did you want to read this? Oh, okay. What did you know about it beforehand and like what drew you to it other than just like a generalized interest in Beckett and a, and an interest in his other works? Um, I think specifically this 
trio of novels has interested me since I worked on the first one. Um, because even that one was kind of challenging just in getting a sense of where that character is. Uh, and Beckett, I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in his work because he's kind of, he's very experimental, but has been canonized despite being experimental. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, so I'm interested in, in why, like he won a Nobel, like he is people, people are down with Samuel Beckett for the most part as a contributor to modern literature. Um, and this was just on my shelf as one of those things that I could have read by now if I wanted to. Um, and I felt like I didn't want to dive into Malone dies because it felt like I could have, I wanted to go whole hog. I wanted to dive into the deep end. Um, <laughs> and I, I kind of knew some of the plays that he's created or other works that he's created that are just as, if not impenetrable, but similarly befuddling. Like there's a, there's a play of his called Breath. This is going to make you mad, Andrew. There's a play of his called okay. Breath. And it is on stage. You see a big pile of trash. And it starts with like the sound of a baby being born. And then the lights kind of come up along with someone breathing. And then I think there's maybe one more baby cry. And then it's over. And it takes like 25 seconds. Is that the whole play? That's the whole play. <laughs> what? So that's so stupid. I think it might. Why would you rent space and have? I think it might. I think it might it's be. Like, what if I went to? Okay, hey Craig, let's go to the movies. Let's go see Batman Breathe. That sounds like a really good movie. And then we pay twelve dollars for the ticket, and we get our popcorn. I get a Diet Coke, even though I'm trying to quit because I don't like being dependent on chemicals like that. <laughs> and we walk into the theater. We watch those like previews that happen before the previews where they tell you all the fall comedies that are going to fail. And then they show you the previews. And then you see like the New Line Cinemas logo or whatever. And then it comes up and it's like Batman breathes. And then the lights go up. <laughs> Done. Out. That's the movie. That's Samuel Beckett is straight up trolling people. I think he is. With Bree. I think he's trolling people all the time. I think that's part of his bag. <laughs> I can respect he's that. He's this actually. like deeply affected troll poet. <laughs> okay, let me tell you a story about a thing that apparently happened to Samuel Beckett. Okay. All right. So in 1938, he was walking down the street in Paris. And a dude stabbed him in the chest. <laughs> what? This is a thing where he had one of his stupid contrived plays in his pocket, and it like stopped the dagger, or is this something else? No, uh, but okay. he was—he was—he just got stabbed in the chest. And at All the right. preliminary hearing, Beckett asked the guy, like, why he stabbed him. I can think of a bunch of reasons. Well, this right was now. before he'd written any of his stuff. This was before anybody okay. knew who he was. Uh, maybe it was a time traveler sent from maybe. the future. <laughs> the dude, the dude just replied, uh, "I don't know, sir. I'm sorry." And then Beckett eventually dropped the charges, probably to avoid further formalities. But he also found the guy likable and well mannered. 
did they become like pals after? No, I don't think so. But I think he's just. I think Beckett is is kind of his read on a lot of stuff is that we are just gonna deal with it. Like a bunch stuff. Like there's series of events to him. I think are far less interesting than states of existence. Okay. Um. You know, in this novel, it is the urge to create or the urge to give voice to something and the urge to have rest. I think I think that the silence is for this voice is, you know, the same rest that all of us kind of wish we could have, you know, getting out of the rat race and whatnot. Sure. Um, the voice doesn't, you know, does not have the context of the real world to kind of deal with. But I think that that's similar. Um you know, you can take a look at something like something like Godot, and it's about a state of faith or a state of companionship, depending on your read on it. You know, um, I don't, I don't know if I can tell you. I don't think I have any other uh, troll plays to tell you about. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you that uh, there is an apocryphal story that I think is true. That Sam and Beckett used to give Andre the Giant rides to school. It cannot be. It cannot be apocryphal and true. That's why I. I, I'm just gonna throw I don't that think out. it's apocryphal. I think it's true that Samuel Beckett used okay. to give Andre the Giant rides to school. Okay, that's nice. It's just a thing I thought you might find interesting. I do. I do find that. I'm interesting. trying to repair your relationship with Samuel Beckett right now. I don't know. I think we've got some <laughs> irreconcilable differences. <laughs> Um, I like the book. I, I, it's hard. It's freaking hard. Um, I almost said other words. It's, it's, it's a clean show. It's flipping hard. Um, make your kids listen. Make them talk about us on Facebook. I, I would say that I think I got more out of it having read his other stuff or at least been exposed to his other stuff first. You would not recommend this to somebody who was trying to get into Beckett then. No, don't start with this. There's, okay. First of all, there's more. There's, what should people start with? They could start with Godot. I think Godot is a good place to start. I think Godot is a, a decent place to start, as long as you know that it it doesn't give a damn about its answers. <laughs> it doesn't. Okay. It doesn't care if you figure it out, and it doesn't really want you to. Um, okay. I would also think a, a good place to start is actually watching some of the. There's this really big project called Beckett on Film, where I don't know if it was the BBC funded it or what, but they filmed every theater piece that he wrote, and, and he wrote a bunch of film pieces as well. Um, and some of them are like up on the internet, kind of illegally, which you could go see p- pieces of um, if you cared to do that. Um, if you were the kind of person who did, yeah, that, if you were the you kind heard. of a hole who did that. Um, and Crap's Last Tape is actually really cool too, which is one guy. Uh, who listens to rec- he records himself like kind of in the way that you might write a blog but he does it into tape recorders and then it's i think when the play is happening he's like in his 60s and he's listening to older versions of himself um and there's one weird spot where he's listening to an older version of himself listen to an older version of himself <laughs> and he's it's really it's like he's kind of looking back on uh, a younger version of himself's uh, romance and and stuff like that. 
So I think there. I think you would. I think you should start with theater if you're going to read any Beckett because it's a little more character driven, and you can kind of get his sense of humor. There's a lot of potty humor in this book. Um, there's a part where he first introduces himself as that character that's just like a a head in an urn, and he has like a he still has a body. He just doesn't have arms or legs, and he has a penis, <laughs> and he's like, well, if only I had arms then there'd be something to be wrung from it and you're like oh Samuel Beckett oh man <laughs> man yeah he he talks about like kind of like defecating on some of his ideas and then like two lines later he's like plop plop it's like what are you <laughs> being a weirdo what even is going on Samuel Beckett <laughs> uh yeah it's pretty good don't start here though. Read some other stuff. Warm up to this one, or don't. Or don't. Or don't. Yeah, that's. If that's you're like Andrew, Alice. don't. I feel like I could have done a better job selling this book, but I don't know. I you can't. I'm trying to think of an analogy. Like you can't just roll on up to the farmers market with a bunch of like newspapers that look like artichokes. Like you can't. What? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That's like no. Here's what is, you've got to have something to sell. Is what I'm saying. Like he's, no. it's to show up and say you have something to sell and have nothing to sell is worse than not showing up. That's what I'm I trying don't think to he say. showed up with nothing to sell. He showed up to the farmers market, but all he was selling was like corks. I think well, but they're artisan corks. They're bespoke corks. Bespoke corks. <laughs> Have you heard my indie band, the Bespoke Corks? <laughs> we just covered the Decemberists. Uh, all right, I think we're done here. I think you're done with this. I think our work I didn't is know done. that I was going to make you so mad on this episode. You should have. You should have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> I could have guessed. Well, that's great. I think you really. I mean, this this book by itself did not make me upset as like, much as the rest of his breathe. oeuvre. I, not even the rest of his oeuvre. Just like, just, I, it's, just breath. I think it's I, just breath. Yeah. Well, what are you gonna do? Sam Beck is also the only Nobel laureate to have an entry in Wisden Cricket's the Wisden Cricketers Almanac. He was. I don't even. Know he was a very name. successful cricketer in his youth. Well, good for him. He's a good bowler. And by bowler, that's like the position in cricket. Do you not know anything about cricket? Oh, okay. No, I thought that he was also good at bowling. (laughs) Samuel Beckett wrote a weird book, Bowl of 185. (laughs) Also, I don't think any of the, like, canonical photos of him were taken until, like, the 70s. So every photo of Samuel Beckett, he's like this weird... Irish wizard who just maybe he's just like Steve Martin and he's just looked like that for like 50 years (laughs) it's possible (laughs) and there are like rare photos of Sam Beckett with like not white hair and it always weirds me out it's like it's like he cast a spell on himself I don't care for it Uh, if you were similarly troubled by Sam Beckett or uh, were enthused by my cockamamie summary of his work you can let us know on facebook or twitter 
at facebook.com slash overdue pod or twitter.com slash overdue pod. You can also email your thoughts on modernism and Irish expats to overdue pod at gmail.com. Uh, we've also got a website up at overduepodcast.com. Uh, up on that website, you'll find links to our RSS feed and our iTunes store. A page, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the iTunes thing, something <laughs> iTunes. Um, if you want to subscribe up on uh, iTunes, you can also rate and review us, which, you know, raises our show in the rankings. And we really like to see the positive reviews. And we get a little sad about the negative re- reviews, but we take the bad with the good. Um, also, up on our website are links to the books that we have read, um, are reading, will be reading. Um, if you click on those links, if you want to follow along or if one of the books that we've been talking about, not this one, sound appealing oh, to you. Oh, stop it. It's a good book. It's a good book. There are two <laughs> other books in the book. But come come for the two other books. Oh, Stay my God. The, the book's weird great. Nonsense. It's just weird. <laughs> uh, you can click those links up on our website, which is overduepodcast.com. Uh, that'll take you to Amazon. You buy those books. You buy whatever like rechargeable batteries that you need, and we get a little bit of a cut from that. That helps defray our hosting costs and and the cost of buying the books and and that kind of thing. So we really appreciate it when people do that. That's all we got, Andrew. I think that's all we've got. Um, next week I will be reading P.F. Kluga's Eddie and the Cruisers. Which is notable for two reasons. I think there's there's a reasonably well-known movie that has been made out of it. And also, I have taken a class with P.F. Kluge. So he, have I. He is, yeah, he's currently the writer-in-residence at the place where Craig and I went to college. So that'll be, that'll be interesting. Yeah, you better prepare your bio, and I hope it's all just written in the first person. Oh, I will prepare. I will be so prepared. <laughs> all right, everybody. Uh, until next week, try to be happy. 